Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And the Bloomington Health Foundation, this September hosting the 20th running of Hoosiers Outrun Cancer, a 5K run-slash-walk supporting those in the community facing a cancer diagnosis. Registration and more at HoosiersOutRunCancer.org. From the Milton Metz studio on the Radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg from WFIU, WTIU News, and today we're talking about surveillance technology and how it affects us all. There are cameras installed around Bloomington, which are checked when a crime has been reported, and nationally, surveillance goes well beyond that. Immigration and Customs Enforcement has used facial recognition to scan motorists' faces to identify potential undocumented immigrants. Information has been collected through social networks, data services, and security cameras, often without the knowledge or consent of the public. So what is surveillance? How is it affecting all of us? And how much privacy can people reasonably expect? And we have three guests with us for the first half of the program. We hope that we get a fourth guest for the second half. Uh, Apu Kapadia is an associate professor at IU's School of Informatics, Computing, and Engineering. Fred Kate is IU's vice president of research and a senior fellow at IU's Center for Cybersecurity Research. Uh, Rick Dietz will be joining us. He's the director of IT for the city of Bloomington. And joining us by phone today is Jane Henniger, the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union in Indiana. You can join us on the program by uh, sending us uh, a note at Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send us information or questions, news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. So welcome to everybody. Rick Dietz uh, just made it. Had a little problem this morning with your car, I understand. yeah, glad glad to be here. Thanks for being here, Rick, and uh, all the rest of the guests. So I want to just uh, throw out sort of a broad question first, and I'm going to turn to Fred Kate first to, to ask this. So, you know, the, the surveillance state, I mean, how serious is it? How? What kind of expectation of privacy should people have? So, um, I mean, surveillance is real and it's widespread. And if you think about it, we engage in it every day. I mean, we all carry phones with us that have cameras on them and that have microphones on them. The world in which if someone was recording you, you would know because it would be big and bulky and identifiable, you know, is, is long gone. And in fact, most of the places we go into, whether our homes or our workplaces, you know, we use cameras for security. We have uh, sensors on our thermostats. We have alarm systems. We have all manner of, of sensors that we use. Um, I think the question is not so much about the proliferation of the technology as to how do we control it. In other words, um, we can all see the benefits of this. It's a wonderful thing if surveillance makes your home safer or makes your kids safer. The question is what else is being done with that data? Are there laws in place? Is there enforcement of their laws? And I think think there there's pretty good reason to to worry. I mean, law always lags behind human behavior. That's nothing new and it's not limited to this area. But in this area in particular, because the technology has just exploded the capacity of not only government but of industry and individuals to conduct surveillance, the law has been especially sort of slow in catching up. Mm-hmm. Apu Kapadia, so you've done a lot of research in this area, right? So, Yeah, and um, in addition to you know these surveillance concerns from, say, the government, um, I am particularly very interested in what you could call social surveillance. Right, so when you have these video cameras, like we're going to talk about, installed by the city perhaps, um, maybe you can put your trust or faith in, in a certain organization or, or just decide to live with it. But now when you have cameras in the hands of just fellow citizens or your peers, like the Ring doorbell example, um, uh, Amazon has this doorbell called Ring with a camera on it. And um, the users can install an app and form a community, like a neighborhood watch community, and share videos with each other. Now that um, you can have some sort of surveillance by, let's call them ordinary citizens and peers, 
now you have to start worrying about um, what standards are they going to apply and you know how are what are they going to do with this mm-hmm. data so you know being jud- judged by your peers now opens up a whole new can of worms and and a lot of anxiety so that's the kind of stuff i have been interested in studying um, how are people responding to this proliferation of cameras around them where you're being surveilled by your friends you go to a a house party, right, are college students, um, and now they have to really be careful of the 200 cameras in, in the room. Mm-hmm. Let's just go back to the ring for a minute. That uh, you know, I see television commercials for that, and so basically, people can see whether you when you come and go, they can plot your schedule from you know your neighbors could plot your schedule out, or they could see if somebody who shouldn't be coming to your house is there. Right? Um, well, I, I think we can just think about maybe what the possibilities are. For now, you can assume that, you know, you have access to your your video footage and you choose how you, you share it with others. What I worry about is where this can go. Like you can um, give your neighbor perhaps blanket authority to look at it in the future. You can give law enforcement, which is actually um, now collaborating with Amazon and, and the Ring service to get access to this video footage. For now, um, it seems like they have to still get consent from the, the, the user, the owner of the camera. But in the, in the case with law enforcement, I don't know. Who's going to say no to the cops? I don't know. I, I'm a kind of a scare, scaredy cat in that sense, and, and maybe many people are. So I, I feel like there's the even though there might be some protections right now where you know the companies claim, no, 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 people have to deliberately share the controls make it easier to overshare, right? So there's this thing called the control paradox. When you have more and more controls, you think you're in control, but then you take more risks. And so then uh, that can backfire. So Jane Henniger from the um, ACLU. So you know, what kind of privacy, you know, wh- what are our limits on privacy and what kind of privacy can we expect? Well, as, as Fred's um, answer, Anna, who's, answer suggests that it's not a simple black and white um, answer um, or even a a black and white question. The advances in technology have always come up uh, and posed new challenges for our understanding of our constitutional rights and the limits of government action. And so, uh, you know, this is, as Fred said, a fast changing environment of that same dilemma. What we should demand, we're all aware of the problem. Um, we're probably none of us aware, except for maybe the other panelists today, um, aware of the full extent of the potential for surveillance. Um, but we're all vaguely aware that it's a potential. And, and what we would say as ACLU is we should always question whether the right balance is being struck, whether often technology is used um, for a good purpose, and originally a good purpose, keeping us safe. Um, but, you know, we, we in a free society ask what's the right balance? How much privacy do we want to give up? Can we give up? Should we give up in order to ensure that um, shared goal of of safety and we would um, we always argue you need to be vigilant you need to be mindful and and you know in, in alluding to those policies and laws um, are they adequate are they thinking about all the ways that this technology could be used not just for the initial purpose for but for subsequent purposes how is it being stored how is it being protected um, and, you know, what are the limits? Are we going to go back and audit whether those limits in light of changing technology are appropriate? All of those um, they, all of those are things that we need to be mindful of if we want to protect our, our privacy. So Rick Dietz is uh, with the city of Bloomington, and, and we had a question to our City Limits Project not too long ago about, you know, what kind of cameras do the city, does the city have around the city? So... I guess I want to ask you, Rick, about um, where the city does use cameras and how do you balance that? I mean, we think we worry about government, you know, surveilling the mm-hmm. the, pop, the citizenry. So you're part of the government. How do you do that? <laughs> well, I don't speak for the entirety of uh, Bloomington government or government uh, as a whole, but uh, as your um, as your honored guest here, I'll, I'll do my best. And I, c- I can certainly speak to 
uh, how we uh, maintain uh, our camera systems uh, at the city. And I would uh, suggest to your listeners, as far as the city goes, to think about you know two different um, uh, two different avenues for cameras. You know, one we have cameras that essentially operate to uh, protect uh, protect our facilities. You know, much you know like a department store or you know any uh, a warehouse or any business. You want to have have the ability to understand what's happening um, around your building and within within your building. And that, that I think that's fairly straightforward. We have on the order of uh, 300 cameras um, that serve, uh, serve that purpose, and that's, um, you know, City Hall, our garages. Uh, you know, we, we have about 40 different facilities, at least that my department, the IT department, uh, supports. Not all of those um, have cameras, but a number of them do, and they're there to protect the building, protect the assets, protect uh, our staff, and protect the public when uh, they're present in in those uh, facilities. The other side of that is uh, I would just categorize under generally police use, and that would range from uh, body cams, uh, you know, car cams, and then um, a few cameras that we've put up you know that are uh, for the purpose of of you know monitoring uh, monitoring facilities. Okay, so you know this balance that you're talking. You, so you're you're sort of setting out what the balance is for the city. You're trying to protect your you know trying to protect the the public and trying to make sure that the police is tra- are transparent, and then you're protecting all your facilities. I guess I'll I'll go to our other panelists and say you know Jane mentioned you know what is the right balance with this? Do you have any? That's a great, big, broad question. But, Fred, what would you say? What are the concerns we should think about when we're trying to decide on what's the right balance? Uh, I think the key thing there is maybe a process answer rather than the, the actual answer I know you're, you're hoping for and you're not going to get. Um, and that is we should always have the rules before we have the technologies. So before we deploy anything, particularly using tax dollars, but I would say the same thing with private industry, we should know what the, what the rules are. And those rules can have to do with privacy. They can also have to do with cybersecurity. I mean, we're talking here as if technology is safe and only, the only person seeing the video feed is who you intend to see the video feed. But I think we know if you read the newspaper that technology is intrinsically unsafe and that video feed is likely to be picked up by, by somebody else. And we've seen this, you know, with baby monitors. We've seen it with um, with security cameras on train tracks. We've seen it, you know, where you can literally log in the Internet. And because other people have compromised those cameras, you can tap into those feeds. So that the more that we get the rules of the road down, and those may not necessarily have to be law. In other words, those could be in, in terms in purchasing contracts and things like that that say, what is the service we're contracting for and, and, and what do we want it to be able to do? That's what really is going to matter. We've been. Musical interlude. Yeah, musical interlude. At least it was entertaining. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But again, it's just this point of trying to get to the the the, the put, laying the rails down before you put the trains on them, if you will. Rick, um, that that brings up a one thing that we've worked on recently that I didn't mention. We have a couple of uh, UAVs drones that the city uh, owns and uh, uses, and we've spent you know I would say over the past. You know, several months, really since the beginning of the year, fleshing out you know what our policy governance 
um, document and, and process would be around the use of those tools. Um, they, they do carry cameras. They could potentially be used for surveillance, but generally the use that we intend um, to put for them and that are that are covered in our policies are you know to capture imagery to be able to look at the top of a water tower without having to send a person up there to do to do inspections but we tried to uh, dovetail our policy with what we've seen as best practices from other cities particularly progressive uh, communities and how they're using those assets in a way that protects the interest of their community, but also allows the, the government to make use of that those new tools. Okay. Let me give our uh, phone number again. If you uh, want to call into the show, you can do so at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also uh, follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Uh, I want to go back to Jane and ask her about, you know, there, there are lots of different ways we can go with this conversation today, but, you know, from your standpoint with the ACLU, are there certain areas that you're watching in government, the legislature, to try to make sure that we protect privacy as best we can from the government? Yeah, and I, and I want to endorse Fred's aspiration that the rules come before the behavior. We know that's not always true, especially as new technology comes out. It's it's pitched and sold to government entities directly, um, and sometimes the oversight entities, whether that's a, a city council or a legislature or an executive a branch head, um, even before they're aware that the technology is being pitched or even purchased and put into practice. So that's why there are some overarching legislative mandates that some states, um, Indiana less so, have, have adopted to try to create these um, a, a reflective period to, to set up an, a, a system of accountability as new technology is brought on. And because there are often great benefits to this technology, but we shouldn't be enamored of the benefits and, and be unmindful about the costs. And as to the costs, as often is the case with constitutional rights, we have to be mindful about who actually is bearing the, the liberty costs. Um, with, with technology as it's employed, it's often borne um, um, disproportionately by communities of color or low-income communities, both um, communities that are least um, powerful politically um, to stand up for themselves and push back when they feel that that balance between safety and um, and privacy is out of whack and and so you know that all the more for those rules to ask beforehand who is where where are these technologies being deployed um, are there conscious or unconscious bias being um, uh, reflected in the policy choices and the and the use of of this technology. Apu, yeah, I wanted to follow up on that, and that's a good point that Jane brings up. And I think um, part of the problem is that maybe we, uh, as a society, um, put in put too much faith into technology. And as a computer scientist, I guess I I feel like they're so fallible. <laughs> that people kind of overtrust uh, technology. And, you know, you think about cameras and the footage that's being collected. All of a sudden, you're enamored and you, you say, well, you know, what if we just did some automated analysis of this video footage? I have these 2,000 video feeds. I can't have people watch it all the time. Um, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be awesome if we just analyzed all this stuff automatically? And, and now you start having to deal with false positives and an important aspect that Jane brought up, which is uh, algorithmic bias. We're finding out how these algorithms uh, may do a very good job with, with, with light-skinned people, but then uh, do a terrible job perhaps with, with darker-skinned people. And, and so people like me, I'm a little darker-skinned. <laughs> Uh, being from India, I might worry that, hey, you know, am I going to just be arrested because of some false positive? Maybe later I get cleared. Um, but but it can create real fear 
amongst uh, uh, minority communities, for example. And so we need to be we need to be careful and responsible, and not not just think technology is so amazing. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take uh, a short early break, and then we're going to go to the phones. We have a phone call, but we're going to take a, our break early today. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from WFIU and WTIU, and uh, we're talking about... uh, Surveillance, uh, cybersecurity. Today we had a little episode during the first uh, half of the program, but we'll we're beyond that now. We hope we're going to be moving forward with our four guests: Apu Kapadian, Kapadia, who's an associate professor in IU's School of Informatics, Computing, and Engineering; Fred Kate, IU's vice president of research and a senior fellow at IU Center for Cybersecurity Research. Rick Dietz, the director of IT for the city of Bloomington, and Jane Hinniger, the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union, Indiana. You can join us at uh, 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So we've got a phone call. We're going to go uh, directly to that phone call first, and it's Randy. Go ahead, Randy. Okay. Uh, well, appreciate Mr. Dietz bringing up the drones. I, that's my question. Are there, um, like, federal regulations that would preempt the city from making its own regulations about drones for private use? Um, for instance, a person has a privacy fence and his neighbor flies a drone over it. Do we already have an ordinance that would address that, or is this being talked about? That's my question. Thanks. Thank you for the question. The drones that the city has are operated by, by it and it alone, and the policies that we've developed apply to our internal use um, as, the, as the city. Um, they don't apply to uh, private individuals um, in the community. Largely, it's uh, FAA regulations that uh, govern what private individuals can do, although there's been some recent activity at the state level that's, uh, that's looking at this. Uh, but we, at least my understanding is, and I'm, I'm not an attorney, I don't even play one on TV, um, <laughs> is that we, we do not have um, significant authority to regulate the private use um, of drones. And, and, and personally, I feel that the uh, effort that's going on at the federal and the state level is you know, more than sufficient to, um, to govern that. All right. We do have a couple lawyers here, so... Any any thoughts on drones and, and the the law covering drones? Um, well, I, first of all, I think it's a really important issue, and it's one we're seeing more and more. And let me say though, again, it's probably better to not think of it just linked to a single technology. In other words, we're really talking about surveillance broadly. So right now, I can put a camera on my house and focus it on your house and record images of things that occur in public, and there's no legal limit on that at all. And if you have a pool in your backyard, I can record your kids playing in the pool, and there's no legal limit on that at all unless it amounts to you know, harassment or a, or a physical threat. And similarly, I can fly a drone over my own property and look into your property, and provided I don't get into the navigable airspace, which is uh, certainly not within the first 70 
75 or 200 feet. It's a, any amount of drone would be useful unless you're near an airport is going to be unregulated. I can use that and I can take pictures of whatever I want as long as it's occurring in public. Now, if I, if I use it to go through a, to stare through a window, uh, we would have other types of, of peeping Tom laws that, that might apply there. But it's what we're seeing is cameras get both more powerful and less expensive. So I was just talking about this actually with my brother this weekend. Um, you know, we were given drones many, many years ago as kids, and nobody could fly them. I mean, you had to be a genius to fly a drone. They were unstable. They were expensive. You had to charge the batteries all the time. And, of course, now you can go buy a drone for 50 bucks, and anyone can fly it. It's all stabilized. It works beautifully. And so we are effectively democratizing the ability to commit what we might think of as surveillance violations. Um, and yet again, our law is way behind doing that. And so I certainly agree. I think that's better dealt with at a state or a federal level. But I'm not sure the city's powerless to deal with it. I think the city's just chosen to, uh, at least for the moment, to leave that up to uh, to both private industry to regulate its own campuses. For example, at Indiana University, I don't think you can fly a drone on campus without a permit. Um, or to state or federal lawmakers to regulate on a broader basis. Mm-hmm. All right, Jane. Yeah, yeah. I would just, um, I would just add to that. I agree with everything Fred said. That this is another area of where you know you've got competing interests um, because you know you want uh, regulations appropriately that have a balance between, say, the city's use of drones or other technology um, to. To keep us safe, we want to safeguard our privacy, but also, in using drones as an example, we want to make sure that um, rules or policies that are um, under the guise of use of that technology in a way to keep us safe aren't being used to inhibit um, freedom of the, of the press or otherwise gathering information. So in some communities around the country, the ACLU's concern has been that under the guise of of keeping drones out of, of airspace air um, during a protest, they limit the ability of the press to monitor what's going on and report that to the public. And, and you know, you can imagine all kinds of iterations where on one hand the policy looks like it's a neutral one just to designed to keep us safe. On the other hand, it could be used or is used to limit access of information, especially via the press that's used to inform us and let and allow us, the citizens, to push back on that government's use of technology. All right. We have a few more uh, questions that have come in in various avenues. We have one that came in uh, via Twitter from uh, refers back to some of our earlier conversation. This comes from Adam. As a builder, we're looking at incorporating tech into new homes in 2020, one of which is the Google Nest doorbell that we spoke of. What level of tech belongs in our homes today? I guess that's a real opinion question. Anybody want to handle that? Apu? What? Well, um, yeah, I can't uh, necessarily draw the line, but I can at least highlight how um, perhaps dangerous these technologies could be. Um, so, for example, um, a lot of people are now installing these Google Home or Amazon Echo, these Alexa-like uh, enabled devices that they can talk to and they can play the music for them. Except that now you've you've added one more microphone or camera into your home. Um, you don't actually know when they are not watching or or listening, right? So we're doing some research on trying to understand how do you uh, design these devices so that people have like a real ta- uh, tangible sense of privacy. Is the camera on or off? So, But the point being that when you introduce all this technology in people's homes, now you've unwittingly introduced um, microphones and cameras. And let me add one more example because in some cases it might be obvious. Like, of course, um, this little personal assistant of mine has a microphone. Uh, but um, I bought some uh, Nest Protects, which are these smart smoke detectors recently, somewhat recently, um, and only later on found out that they all have microphones in them. And you wonder why, and, well, they, they, they have this cool feature that, well, quote-unquote cool feature, where um, they can do a sound check. These, these smoke detectors can, can sound the smoke alarm and then listen to whether it actually heard the alarm, and so it can perform this check automatically for you. But this is kind of scary. 
now every room in your house where you put a smoke detector, now you've introduced uh, these microphones. So as a builder, if you start installing all this smart stuff into people's homes, you're introducing privacy problems. And, of course, there's the whole issue of cyber vulnerabilities where, you know, uh, hackers can get in and disable all these things and, and, and wreak all kinds of havoc. So I would personally tread carefully mm-hmm. um, with privacy and security in mind. Okay. We ha- go ahead. I, I mean, one piece of good news here is it used to be the technology question in homes was like whether to put – you know, twisted pair throughout the house or whether to put coax throughout the house or whether to put some. Well, those are all, I mean, as my panelists are laughing, those are all like dead technologies. I mean, none of those are really mattering now. And so in terms of the infrastructure, like the things you're putting in the walls that are really hard to take out, my guess is other than power, there's nothing you would put in a house now because it's almost all wireless or Bluetooth or it's it's not going to require that type of infrastructure. So then you end up with questions about devices, like the doorbell. Well, the good thing about the doorbell, if I bought a home and it had a, a camera doorbell that could be accessed remotely, I'd just unscrew it, take it out, and put in a regular doorbell. Um, it, but at least it can be replaced by the, uh, by the individual. And similarly, the technology changes so fast, even if you pay top dollar and put in the newest, hottest thing today, by the time that house sells, that will be um, you know, 80% cheaper and probably have been replaced by some other new technology. So this may not be a great place to invest a lot of money when thinking about like building a house. Okay, we have another question that uh, came in by email. This is, you know, a whole series of questions. But basically, if the owner of a public use building installs video recording cameras, are they required to post signs? Is there a, is there any kind of posting requirement that you're aware of, Jane? Can I ask? Fred, <laughs> um, I don't. I don't think there is. I, I would say it's absolutely the best practice, and it's the best defense. Uh, if there is a lawsuit claiming an invasion of privacy, one of the ways in which you defeat such a lawsuit is by saying, "Well, you had notice. You knew this was happening. So if you still behaved in a way that you thought was private, it wasn't reasonable." And so notice helps. Um, you'll notice almost all businesses do this. They, they, they might not be very visible. They may be just something on the door or on the window or whatever. You don't have to put a notice in front of every camera or something like that. But on the only time I can really think of when we would when we would advise as a good practice using cameras without notice is where you're doing a specific investigation. Like mm-hmm. you think someone's embezzling, so you install a camera over their cash register. You may not want to put a notice up saying, by the way, we're now watching you. On the other hand, if you think about going through the grocery store line now, they have cameras everywhere. I can't stand it. You, you know, scanning your items at Kroger, looking at your face, they might as well put mirrors up. It's so offensive. But at least you know it's happening. That's why they put the camera and that's why they put the screen there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes it a, a superb deterrent for that type of crime. Okay. Um, so we also – oh, go ahead, Jane. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to jump in on the concept of notice. I think it's really important for us to to be aware of. It doesn't answer or solve every uh, issue just because you give notice, say, just because government gives notice. That doesn't mean that's necessarily a resolution of whether what they're doing is a violation of privacy rights. But um, it it it's a factor and also in our expectations of privacy, et cetera. Also, I think that, um, you know, that as, as Fred has alluded, I mean, the technology is incredible now. I was just um, reading one of the technologies that the ACLU has flagged um, as a potential concern are light bulbs that have cameras in them. And so, you know, you could have illuminated public space where that's being surveilled and you don't know it. And that both has an immediate um, questions and concerns that are raised, but also the more that technology of uh, uh, pervasiveness is um, that we're vaguely aware, the more that we'll come to assume that it's always there. And then you have the potential chilling effect. So even if I don't have notice, I don't see a sign that um, a camera is in use in a public space because of it, how pervasive we've allowed it to become in the future, but, uh, 
hopefully not, but you know, if we allow it to become so pervasive that we just assume it's always there, then what kind of activity is being chilled? Are we going to protest um, everything that we think should be protested? Are we going to assume that government, um, because of who I am, might not want me in that place, and even though I have a right to be there, I may stay away? So, you know, we. Notice works both ways, and we want to make sure that um, we don't become uh, assume allow technology to become so pervasive, surveillance to become so pervasive that we kill our our First Amendment rights by self censoring. Okay, if you have a question or a comment, please give us a call at eight one two eight five five zero eight one one or toll free at one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also send us uh, questions, news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Apu? Yeah, I wanted to add, going back to my earlier comment um, about social surveillance and, and connecting with what Jane just said, um, we've done some interviews with students on, on campus to understand um, how they're dealing with cameras today because they are growing up, this generation is growing up with phones around them. They, you know, you go, like I said, you go to a party and Anybody could be um, taking, uh, you know, video or fo- photos of you. And so we're interested in this kind of chilling effect and self-censorship. And we are notice- noticing this. So some participants would, when they answer, say, no, 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 you, you, you people don't understand. My generation doesn't really have a problem. But then when you dig deeper, you realize that um, they've just kind of readjusted their baseline, their privacy baseline, and they've adjusted their behaviors so that it doesn't become too much of a consuming problem for them. They don't have to think about it too much. But you hear things like, um, oh, you know, I, I check my, my hair and my clothes before I leave just in case somebody takes a, a photo of me and makes a meme out of me, and then now everyone on the Internet is, is laughing at me. And it doesn't have to be everyone on the Internet. You know, it could be the 15 people who matter to you um, that, that are laughing at you. So I think some, some researcher has kind of... Um, drift on what, what Andy Warhol said, you know, your 15 minutes of fame. And, and, and this person said, in, in the future, everybody will be famous to 15 people. Mm-hmm. So everyone is a kind of a micro-celebrity on their little social network. And you can think of this kind of as the social paparazzi are after you. Um, and, and yes, your whole world, it's a smaller world, but it's your whole world, can come crumbling down. And then people start engaging in these self-censoring uh, behaviors. We want to sort of move into that area of protection, and you know, we did have one caller ask about the weird song that played during the first half of the of the program. And does IU know what happened? Well, I, I don't know the answer to that yet. But then they go on to say, "Can IU protect against hackers?" I'll turn to Rick Dietz from the city of Bloomington. I mean, what what can be done to, you know, protect? You know, community or government data, which is our data, against mm-hmm. against hacking. Well, I think that's the same the same answer that you would for any institution or even in um, you know any in individual is to make sure that you have secure systems that you're ensuring that the systems are um, are up to date that you're utilizing uh, utilizing best practices. Um, you know, to pull pull this back to to individuals, I think one of the challenges is with um, Kind of, you're 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 intentionally violating your own privacy when you use just about any application on your smartphone. If you use social media, then and maybe you have the um, location data turned on because it helps you find events where your friends are at. That's information that's being recorded and transmitted off of your phone to a private entity. That entity may or may not have um, you know rules or um, rules that you agree with they may have a click-through license or something that you said I agree to at one point in time several years ago when you first downloaded the app or the app pops up and says I need access to your location information and your uh, microphone and that sort of thing and you don't think about it and hit it and then that application which could even be something as innocuous as one of these flashlight applications that just lights up it may have access to you know ten sensors that are on your phone because you said yes. It has no reason for that, 
um, and you don't know what's happening to it, but you've kind of self-violated you know, your own privacy. Um, and then if that app is running in the background on your phone for months, um, which it could be, um, then you're just providing a steady stream of information to a third party that you may have no real connection with or no ability to trust. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't know if that was meant to be uplifting, but um, <laughs> but it's so true. And I mean, it does it does sort of come back to the point we've talked a lot in like privacy and security for decades about giving individuals control of their information. That's what we always talk about. It's how the Supreme Court defines privacy. It's I think in reality, most of us are incapable of controlling our information. And when we try, we screw up. We click yes when we should have clicked no. We install things we shouldn't have installed. And so it may be the paradigm should be that our information is in control rather than that we are controlling it. So that might be um, more de facto standards that come from government regulation or from other things about what you can do with data. Uh, But we see this even in the surveillance debate. There's almost always a good reason to do surveillance. I mean, security. Who doesn't believe in security? I mean, who doesn't want to protect the entrance to their home or protect their kids? The question is, what about uh, what else is done with that information? And then can you control that information once you have it? And so we may just need to start rethinking this. Like we don't think about individual rights quite so much about, say, highway safety. There, there's some basic rules we use for highway safety. And then you get to make choices about like which car you buy or how fast you drive. We may have to think about some of these issues, especially around security, in, in the same way. Mm-hmm. Are there certain things that we can or should all do, you know, just advice that you would give to people that, that – uh, People probably are violating every single day. Yeah, I think I'll connect a little bit with, with what uh, Rick uh, said earlier. Um, you know, when you install an app, a shiny-looking app on your phone, um, you have to realize that when you give it access to your camera or microphone, um, let's say it's some interesting app that lets you video chat with your friends, right? So if, if this, is by, uh, this app is from a company that you don't really recognize – then you should trust it less. And and I think it's become so easy to install these apps. People don't necessarily think where they're coming from. Um, you might, I'm not saying you should, but you might trust um, Google, Apple, Amazon more um, because they're big companies and, you know, they put maybe put more thought into it, more thought into their security. That introduces another issue of, like, all this data going to these big companies and what they can do with it. So it's, I think, a personal choice whether you really want to trust them or not. But you definitely, I think, have to be very mindful of these unheard-of app developers that you're inviting into your home, almost literally or literally, um, because they can turn on the camera. And we've done some work on this, showing that it's possible. We've done work showing that this innocent-looking app can turn on the camera, take photos in the background, and build a sophisticated three-dimensional model of your house in the background. Or can listen to your microphone surreptitiously and um, you know, hear you speak out credit card numbers, social security numbers. So I think, unfortunately, I want to, on the one hand, kind of not make people wear the tinfoil hat, so to speak, you know, the government kind of uh, surveilling us. But what I want us to think about that cybercrime is actually quite real, and we're starting to see ransomware where malware will kind of encrypt all your files and then demand money or you lose all your files. I don't see why this can't be done, and there are reports of some of this, why malware can't turn your cameras on and record something that they can blackmail you with later or something that you share with your spouse in the evening in your bedroom and, you know, you're kicking back and relaxing, talking about work gossip and now, you know, your intimate, I mean, your your secret thoughts about how you really feel about your boss has been recorded. So this is possible. So what I would say in terms of what should we do, right, that was the, the original question. Mm-hmm. I would say you, you should cover your camera when you bring it into more private spaces, right? So you can buy camera covers for your phones, or you could just put something over it. What I don't know what we can do about at the moment is what to do about the microphones. The designs of our devices today are so poor that we can't actually disable the microphones. And so maybe maybe you don't bring the microphones into your, your phones into your bedroom and you keep it out. So I would exercise caution with all these newfangled devices, let's call them that, with, with, with uh, microphones and cameras. But also be very careful of the apps you install and ask yourself, you know, why should I trust this or that developer? And what are they going to do when I'm not using the phone? 
Now we're, we're getting into the scary part of the program. Yeah. So if you, want, <laughs> if you want to give us a call, we got about seven or eight minutes to go, 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org and at Noon Edition. Uh, Rick, we've had a, a question come in also that you can probably, uh, I guess just asking for your opinion about about the hacking that occurred in Terre Haute recently, familiar with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, not not in exhausting detail, but yes, it, um, I, I does know that make that you nervous? Um, I'm I'm nervous all the time <laughs> about about this. Um, you know, we we do our uh, our very best to protect our uh, you know our digital assets, and you know any time that a peer. Um, you know, ha- has had a violation, you know, of some sort. You know, there's lots of different ways that you know systems can um, can be uh, accessed, and lots of different outcomes to that. You know, including the you know the ransomware op- options, or just people that are getting into the system and you know potentially removing in- information. So we just have to make sure that all of our um, all of our software and server infrastructure is as uh, secure as can be. All of our um, hardware, you know, in our network that provides you know access um, between systems is uh, is updated, and that we're we're following best practices. One of the things that we've recently done is um, join a Department of Homeland Security program that provides um, some. You know, consulting and uh, services for for local governments, and you know we're just beginning that process. But uh, one of those initiatives is called Cyber Hygiene, and they're basically just looking at what are our exposed servers and um, informing us if they see anything that needs to be updated or out of line. So we've already been doing that ourselves, but it's you know we're we're happy to have a duplicate effort to make ourselves as secure as we possibly can mm-hmm. at the city. I think, Jane, one of the uh, interesting issues about this is that, you know, sometimes, you know, we, we look to government to protect us from certain things. And in this case, you know, the government can do things that presumably will help uh, protect citizens from things that happen. But at the same time, we have to be wary of government and getting too, you know, getting too involved with you know, with our privacy. So, you know, again, you, you mentioned what is the right balance. And I guess I want to go go back to that. You, you've heard a lot of conversation today, and I know it's it's an issue that you do think about. So, you know, can you give us any, bring us back to any sense of balance of what we should? Yeah. I, mean, I think that with, with any area of our, our relationship to our government, um, it's from the beginning. Every form of government is a is a an agreement to what the right balance is, and so I think that discussion of technology, the awareness that this is a complicated area that we've in uh, technology that we've embraced, we just need to be mindful about the cost of that embrace, and that it's not all an upside. And and the. And I'll just add one area of caution before I offer an area, a sign of optimism. So the, the one thing that we haven't talked about that I just wanted to touch on is that, um, you know, the public-private um, divide here is as, um, is complicated, right? So a lot of this data that everybody's been talking about is collected by private entities, often you know, the Constitution protects us from government action, but in, in sometimes government is privatizing some of these uh, data applications or um, data collection troves, and um, and so we can't we can't divorce the responsibility <coughs> of of government to adhere to the Constitution by allowing them or giving them a break because it's a private entity that's collecting it or keeping it. Those, those constitutional protections should be um, applied and the same principles should be applied. And some, you know, and we see this with, you know, the, when a, a data collector, whether it's a phone company or a social media company is then um, the government turns to them to, to collect data that they've 
to get data, access to data that they've collected from us with our willingness and unaware that the government might someday ask for it. So we have to be mindful that in this area especially there's a lot of overlap and we need, so we need to think about the private collection not only for our own personal cybersecurity but also because government could have access to it un unless we um, draw the line. I think that the area of optimism that I would like to leave people with is that unlike many complicated issues of public policy in our country right now, this is not an issue that um, falls on hard partisan lines. There's a lot of bipartisan concern about um, surveillance, about cybersecurity, about access of government to information. And, and while that doesn't mean that government, with all the other things that it has to think about, our legislators, with all the other things they have to think about that they've kept up, that they've, they've um, identified those best practices and implemented those rules and laws ahead of time, as, as Fred um, recommended. But, but if we advocate for them, um, there is um, 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 openness on either side of the the aisle, political aisle, um, to enacting them. So I think that's a bit of um, a good silver lining um, uh, as we try to figure out how the best case to go forward and how to push government um, to, to enact those policies and rules and laws that will um, strike that right balance. All right. You know what? We're going to end on that optimistic note because we are out of time. <laughs> I want to thank you. Thank you, Jane Henniger, for being here with us today. I also thank our guests thank in you. the studio, Apu Kapadia, Fred Kate, and Rick Dietz for producer Benta Boutier, engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And the Bloomington Health Foundation, this September hosting the 20th running of Hoosiers Outrun Cancer, a 5K run-slash-walk supporting those in the community facing a cancer diagnosis. Registration and more at hoosiersoutruncancer.org. <laughs>